you can write into your operating agreement and you can allocate depreciation to some members versus other members, you know, based on uh, certain capital contributions or or otherwise. And so once the operating agreement's been drafted, there's really nothing you can do at that point. You know, if someone says, well, I don't need depreciation, someone says, I really do. There's not really much you can do at that point. But if you plan ahead and do that beforehand, you can actually make it make sense for, for every all parties involved. Welcome to the TCO Method, the only show focused on helping you massively increase your net operating income. And in this particular episode, we are going to be talking about keeping more of your money after you've maxed out your net operating income. I am Andy McQuaid. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. I am honored to welcome our very first guest interview, Yona Weiss. He is a powerhouse with property owners tax savings. He's business directors at Madison Specs, a national cost segregation leader. He has assisted his clients in saving hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm going to throw that out there on taxes through cost seg. And he has a background in teaching, a passion for real estate and helping others, which he has done for me personally. Um, sort of following his lead and and getting involved, I think through Jamie Kane originally was was who uh, brought me into your circle uh, a long time ago. And he's an active real estate investor, and he hosts the top real estate podcast, Weiss Advice, which I was listening to yesterday in the car on my way home. Um, and if you want to check him out, link link up with him on LinkedIn. Check out his website, yonaweiss.com. Uh, check out his day job at Madison Specs. And hopefully this episode will be coming out on a Saturday. We're calling this the Saturday special. So with that, Yona, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome. I appreciate your patience in dealing with this new setup that I've never used before on Riverside. It's so, so far so good. Thank you so much, Andy. What an honor to be the first guest on the podcast. It's uh, really a pleasure. And you're absolutely right. It's uh, There's so much to learn, especially when you are wanting to you know, keep more money you know, it's not about how much you make. It's really about how much you keep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, a lot of the listeners of this show are either new to real estate or maybe new to commercial real estate. So they don't really understand necessarily all the ins and outs of what happens uh, in their income taxes once they start dealing with larger properties that are eligible or maybe where it's worth doing a cost seg. Um, so let's, I guess, start with what is cost segregation? What are the advantages and who should be using it? So cost segregation is a really weird name that the IRS gave to a, a tax deduction. It's a, a strategy that allows property owners to pull, get accelerated depreciation deductions. So taking a step back, I have to understand depreciation. Anytime you buy a property, whether it's residential, commercial, as long as it's not your primary residence, you're able to take a tax write-off of the entire value of that property. Okay, that's called depreciation. And it's based on the principle that things go down in value as time goes on, like the name sounds, but it's just a borrowed term because you're, the value is not really going down. 
uh, of your property, you're just able to take a tax write-off as if it were going down in value. And that, but it's over a long period of time. So depreciation generally for commercial properties, it's over a 39-year period or a 27 and a half year period from the time you bought the property. So again, it's it's not intrinsic to the property's um, you know, depreciation, as it were, because it's this 39 or 27 and a half year schedule starts over every time the property changes hands. Uh, so it's very subjective to the property owner. Now, like I said, that's a very long time to wait to take all of those tax write-offs or those tax deductions. That's where cost segregation comes in, that we're able to break down the property through an engineering uh, report or, or study of the building or the property that allows you to pull from that pool of potential deductions and by allocating certain components to faster depreciation schedules, like a five-year or 15-year schedule, you're able to take the deductions of the value of those components over a faster period of time. So basically, to sum it up, it's a cash flow mechanism that allows you to pull from this pool of potential deductions that you may never see or may never take and then get them like in the earlier years of ownership. That's awesome. And it's extremely powerful. And then something that we've seen over the last uh, several years since uh, Trump was in office, the bonus depreciation uh, availability and how that's changing right now, or maybe changing back to right. what it was. I don't really know where we stand on, on that particular part of it, but can you can you bring everybody up to speed on that? Yeah. Please? So bonus depreciation, as you mentioned, was a change in the tax code uh, in the law and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act back in 2017, that once you've done a cost segregation study and have allocated certain components, sometimes 20 or 30% of the property into these faster depreciation lives that you can take over a five-year or 15-year period, bonus depreciation says that you're allowed to take 100% of those deductions in the first year. So think about it like this. Let's say you have a million dollar property and if you, you know, take off land, land doesn't depreciate, but you're able to essentially uh, take whatever's left. Let's say you take off 15% for land, which is pretty national average, and then the remaining 850,000, you're able to depreciate over a 27 and a half year period. That would give you a 30,000 year deduction every single year. Okay, which is great, helps to reduce your taxable income. But what cost segregation does is accelerates some of those deductions. Let's say, again, 20% of that, just to be very conservative. And you're able to take 170,000 of those deductions in the earlier years. Okay, but that's spread over a five-year period, like I mentioned. Bonus depreciation comes in and says, now you can take that 170,000 in the first year as a tax write-off. So instead of a $30,000 deduction, you're boosting it up in the first year to 170,000 in that example. So that's what 100% bonus depreciation did. It was in the tax code to be uh, in effect through the year 2022. If you bought a property between 2018 and 2022, you can claim this 100% bonus depreciation uh, method. However, this year, 2023, at the time of this recording, it's gone down to 80%, uh, and then it will continue to phase out by 20% each year. Unless, of course, as you alluded to, there are some changes, it, it gets reverted, we may need a change of administration in order for that to happen, but uh, it has yet to be seen. Got it. Thank you. Um, I, was, I wasn't sure if there was any updates on that particular change or not yet. I figured it would probably die on the vine <laughs> uh, the way things are currently. 
but it's worth at least discussing that it is being it is it's actually been there. somebody's yeah, paying it's actually attention. been passed in the house um in a bill that was proposed right. but again it needs in order to come to law it needs to be passed in the senate and as well as signed off by the mm-hmm. president so that may or may not happen right um so for cost segregation who is the right person what size properties and how does that look process wise for those people once they start really digging into it and wanting to make that a reality the first thing you always look at is the person right you asked who's the right person for this now cost segregation is a great tax tool but is not able to be used equally by everyone because there's something called real estate professional status, which is a term that the IRS came up with for someone who is full-time in the real estate business, whether you're managing, owning, operating, you know, buying, renovating, um, or brokering even properties. Now, the one exception there, the brokering, is it doesn't have to be your own properties. All the other things has to be materially participating in running your own, your own properties. So if you have rental properties and that's your full-time job, as long as you don't have another W-2, you are automatically a real estate professional. Why this is so important is because, as we're going to see in a second, the deductions from cost segregation and depreciation in general are limited to just offset any passive income. So passive income, the IRS defines as real estate or rental income. There are some other options like royalties, or if you have a passive business interest, for example. But generally speaking, if you have another full-time job, you're not able to benefit from the depreciation or the cost segregation, again, which is just like depreciation on steroids. You're not able to benefit from it much outside of your rental property income. Whereas if you're a real estate professional, that's the best person because not only are you able to use these deductions, remember that huge $170,000 deduction. Well, if your rental property income is only $30,000, well, you've just gotten this huge tax write-off that just is a passive loss and you can't actually use. Uh, in the current year. However, if you are a real estate professional, that deduction will carry over not only forward, but in the current year to be able to offset or reduce any other taxable income you have. So that's the best person to get it done. Uh, I would say there are scenarios where even someone who's not a real estate professional, it does make sense. There's always going to be scenarios. So it's important to discuss this with your tax advisor, discuss this with you know someone who who understands this. And the type of property Really doesn't matter the type because this can be done on a single family, multifamily, commercial, retail, office, industrial, storage, you know, you name it, any type of property. But it starts making sense in terms of dollar value um, if the purchase price is over, let's say, $200,000. Anything below that, it just the, the cost of getting one of these things done versus the actual after-tax savings is going to be minimal. And so if because I know this question will come up for for some of the newer people because everybody seems to want to start on the ground level with doing their own flip or doing their own rental property. And it's usually like a single or a duplex or maybe a quad, but those are usually a little more expensive. So let's say single family rental, you know, they buy the thing for 30 grand, they dump 100 grand into it, fixing it up. It's now worth, let's say 200. They want to rent that out. How does that how does that work for them? Is it worth it for them at that point, or can they pool multiple properties? Like if they if they have three or four separate properties in one LLC that are 
worth more than 200,000? Can they pull that together or, or what does that so look like? So a few like? really great questions there. I'll try to tackle them one by one. It's it's important <laughs> to uh, to understand we're going to we're going to segregate the Sorry. questions. Um <laughs> it's important to understand when it comes to renovations to best case scenario is to do a cost saving on a property before you've done renovations. Now, we're going to look at the purchase price and that's the sole basically determiner, um, determining factor Perfect. is the purchase price. Because once you've done renovations, you've essentially disallowed yourself from use, doing cost segregation on the purchase itself. And then we're only going to be looking at the renovation component. So if you, you know, buy in your example, buy a property for $30,000 and then put $200,000 into it. So it can be beneficial to do a cost like on the renovations, but on the purchase, there's not going to be any benefit there. Now, okay. lumping properties together, that can be that can be done only when the properties are number one were purchased together, so they're on the same depreciation schedule, okay. um, and number two that they are very extremely similar in nature, meaning that they're either in close proximity, you know, have the same year and and type of build. So you know, it's it's very common to do if if you're buying, and I've had many people who buy um, you know, properties like in a, in a, a development, you know, so you're buying the same. Uh, yep properties on, on the same block or something like that, you know, they're all built at the same time, the same uh, layout, et cetera. Otherwise, each property is really going to need its own engineering study because the, the differences involved are, you know, are, can be huge from one property to the next. Awesome. Okay. That's, that helped a lot. Um, cause I didn't know that. So I was kind of thinking eh, everybody else is probably going to want to know. So, um, I guess my next question is what do you, advise people do when they're looking to start um i guess the process what's what's that look like so you already mentioned sort of that they're not going to start by doing renovations mm -hmm. immediately it's going to benefit them to buy the property do the cost seg and then worry about doing capex down the road so how does that benefit them and why and what's their process look like the first step we always like to do is run a free upfront analysis of any property. So we're going to collect some information, reach out to, you know, a cost company like us, Madison Specs, or any other company usually provides this service where you'll provide them with certain information about the property, the address, the purchase price, you know, um, if there were renovations done, that's, you know, a separate thing, but you know, square footage, et cetera. And we're able to run the numbers and show what the potential tax savings would be, Break down the deductions versus you know the regular straight line deduction method that we said over twenty seven and a half year, or alternatively showing you the bonus depreciation or the cost segregation depreciation. So that's the first step is really just the education, understanding what this is actually going to look like if I do it on my property, how much it's going to cost, and what the potential tax savings are going to be. It's pretty simple, you know, straightforward process. Like I said, uh, it takes about a day or two just to run those numbers, and then once you have that, you have a much more educated decision to see if it's going to be worthwhile for your property. Perfect. And then I've heard through the grapevine and a little bit through personal experience, there are some, let's say, uh, nervous CPAs or accountants or bookkeepers out there who are not fans of doing cost segregation. And I've, I've heard the word scam come <laughs> up. Uh, I've heard the phrase it's not actually worth doing because you just have to pay it back if you sell the property. So I guess let's let's tackle all the the craziness that the listeners are going to get from their 
teams if they yeah. have a team and and kind of go go from there. So it's very common un- unfortunately as uh, as you mentioned where you'll have CPA that just may not be so familiar with this. I mean there are really two categories of CPAs, the ones that really have no idea uh and like like someone who calls it a scam just they have no idea. This is directly in the tax code and the IRS considers it the correct way to depreciate your property, not spreading it out over the straight line but actually categorizing each component to its proper depreciation life. Now, they don't require it because it would uh, require you to pay an extra, you know, a third-party firm to get this done. So they don't require a conservation. However, there's another category of CPAs who are just against it, meaning they know what it is, they just don't recommend it. And that can very well be for a lot of good reasons. Uh, For example, if you're planning on holding a property for a short period of time, there is going to be what's called depreciation recapture tax, which we'll talk about in a second. It doesn't mean you're going to pay back that depreciation, but it means you're going to be subject to a tax on the sale. So a CPA who understands a person, hopefully a good CPA who understands a person's full tax uh, situation can hopefully you know push them in the right direction. Now, that being said, there are certainly situations where it's not going to be beneficial. Like I said, if a person's not a real estate professional, getting these extra losses or deductions that may not be able to be used is is really you know exercise in futility. I mean, at at best. Um, right. And there are many cases where uh, if you are continuing to buy property, it is certainly a good situation. So if you have a CPA that's not recommending it in that situation, if you are a real estate professional or you do continue to buy properties, your your plan is to continue to to use this to scale. I think that's probably the best case scenario to use cost segregation. Um, but yeah, again, there are situations where it will work, where it won't work. If your CPA thinks it's a scam or doesn't know what it is, the best thing you can do is either educate them, try to educate them if they're willing to. If not, just just find someone else. If you're a real estate investor and that's something that you know you want to be doing, you want to make sure that you have a CPA who is familiar, not just familiar, who is you know an expert in real estate. Because just like if you were a manufacturer or if you were you know a doctor or a dentist, you want to make sure. There are certain specific deductions for each industry that you want to make sure you're capturing, and you need a CPA who specializes in that uh, field in order to maximize that. I agree completely. (laughs) I actually had an entire episode about making sure your team is going to help you because they will make or break you. And if you have somebody who doesn't work full-time in real estate and understand the business, and they're advising you on any part of what you're trying to do, you're going to have a real rough time. <laughs> so uh, that's awesome. The, I guess the next question is, um, when it comes to actually filing a cost segregation with your CPA, with your attorney, with or with your uh, with your business partners, whatever. How does that break down between like? A Joe homeowner who's got a few properties and they want to do cost seg because maybe they bought four or five this year versus how an LLC would do it that's a partnership versus like a C Corp or, you know, an ent- another entity, let's say that. Is there differences in the process or is it really just get the paperwork done and, and file it and take the money? Yeah, take the money run. There's, the, well, it's, there's not really a difference from the cost segregation perspective. I mean, what we're doing is on the property level, meaning we're going to do one cost segregation and that's going to create, you know, it's a detailed study report, can be 80, 90 pages long. And then that creates a new depreciation schedule. And that one page, essentially your accountant, you're going to hand off to them and they'll apply it. You know, if it is an LLC, obviously each member 
will receive their proportion of depreciation based on their proportion of ownership in that LLC. That's typically how it flows through. The one main or a, a couple main differences is if there is a structure called a tenants in common, a tick structure, which is fairly common in, in real estate when you're having, not as common as having LLC, but when you have multiple partners, especially if there's a 1031 involved or you have uh, you know different tax bases going into that property, we'll, they'll actually need to be two separate conservation reports filed for each respective basis uh, of that. And then that's going to just be applied uh, you know, accordingly. The other thing that is necessary when doing a conservation on a property that you've owned for, you know, and you've already filed taxes on it a previous year, but you didn't do cost seg, is there's a special form called a 3115. It's a 3115 form, which changes your depreciation method. And it's something you need to adjust your, uh, you know, adjust the calculations and adjust the methodology of depreciation. That's something that is in addition to the conservation that needs to be done. But otherwise, like I said, it's pretty straightforward. Get it done, hand it off to your CPA, and hopefully they'll uh, be competent enough to to apply it. <laughs> yes, hopefully. Um, so you mentioned the uh, depreciation tax if you sell the property before you hit those lengthy milestones of ownership. So what what does that entail, and and what does that really look like from a I guess a planning standpoint and um, you know, most people are going to be business owners. If they're rep status, they're going to have some sort of write-offs every single mm-hmm. year to, to offset earnings. But what does that tax look like? So anytime you sell a property, you're going to be subject to what's called depreciation recapture tax. And it's similar to a capital gain tax, which everyone is familiar with. You're you know taxed on the difference between the purchase price and the sale price. That's called capital gain. Uh, similarly, you've had what's called an unrealized gain by taking these depreciation deductions over the course of ownership. That's going to be taxed similar to capital gain on a few different rates, actually. One rate is going to be uh, certain components of the property, the structural components, depreci- straight line depreciation on the capital gain, you know, maxed at 25% tax rate. Other components, when you're doing a conservation and taking more deductions up front, those are actually going to be taxed at ordinary income tax rate. And so, being subject to that tax is something you definitely have to plan ahead of time, especially if you plan on selling in a shorter period of time, because the main benefit of cost seg is the time value of money. Like I said earlier, using those deductions to reinvest to help you scale, especially if you continue to buy properties year after year, mm-hmm. this is a great method to do that. It's important to note also, a lot of people think, you know, like you mentioned, see people say, well, don't do the cost seg because you're just going to have to pay it back. And recapture just means I'm, I'm recapturing. And so it's a misnomer to think I'm paying back the depreciation. That's not what it means at all. It means you're subject to a tax on the amount of depreciation taken. So you're, whatever the case is, you're always going to benefit from doing a cost seg because two reasons. Number one, the arbitrage, the difference of tax rate between had you just paid the taxes on your ordinary income tax rate this year versus paying or paying that tax even down the road whenever you sell is that the arbitrage is always, you're, you're going to be benefiting from that. But right. the other reason is, I mean, inflation. I mean, think about it. The time value of money is, is going up. Another really important thing is being subject to a tax doesn't mean you have to pay that tax. Okay. There are other deferral methods or strategies that can be done in the year of the sale that can actually help you to either further defer that, that tax. So you're not going to pay it 
or even reduce that or offset that with other deductions or other losses that you can actually you know, just wipe out that tax viability whatsoever. I'm a big fan of the opportunity cost mm-hmm. side, where if you have more cash in your pocket, you can deploy, you're in a better position, period. Of course. <laughs> so my, I guess my question is, is there, a, is there an impact on long-term capital gains versus short-term capital gains from a taxation level involving cost seg or no? Or is it just, it's a wash? No, in short-term capital gains, is only if you're going to be selling in less than a year. So obviously there is an impact um, when it comes to that. So don't, usually, I very rarely I'll recommend getting a cost segregation done if you're planning on selling in less than a year. And in fact, it may be questionable if you can even claim depreciation if the intention is just kind of to flip a property because it's more, it's it's not being held as a rental property. It's really just being, you know, flipped. So that's, that in of itself is questionable, but uh, it is still possible in certain scenarios, but definitely that's why we run the feasibility analysis up front. You can weigh the options and you can see what the benefits are versus, you know, paying the taxes. All right. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I, I didn't really think about it on the flipping side, but yeah, it does. It it does seem to line up. I saw a couple people write some purchase offers recently with a a rider in there, you know, we'll pay you a million bucks for this. If you want to buy it back in 12 months, you know, you can, you can buy it back at 1.1, something like that. And great on you if you can, you know, but most people aren't going to execute that particular clause. And I just thought it was weird. I'm like, how is this going to even affect like all of your planning and tax strategies and stuff? If you think you're going to hold this and then you're giving it back to the owner in a year. I mean, yeah, you make a hundred grand great on you, but I just didn't know what that was going to look like on the cost seg side. And that's, that's an outlier. It's a weird one. So, um, what else do people need to know about cost segregation? Because I'm, I'm a noob. I haven't used it. I do hard money lending. I'm in storage. Like I help people with my consulting business, which is still my, my full-time job, even though I work Mm -hmm. for myself. So what does that look like for, um, the average person, what what do they need to look out for pitfalls wise? What do they need to to do to plan ahead? Is there any benefit to like structuring out, you know, ahead of time when they're looking to do a rehab? Is there a period of time after a cost seg is done that they should hold off on doing the rehab? Like what 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 are the impacts? I sure. guess. Yeah, I mean, really, really great questions. A lot of interesting points when it comes to cost. Like, I think one of the most important things what you mentioned about the renovation gets overlooked by a lot of people. And they think that, oh, I can just do a cost segregation no matter what. And that's not the case. So really important when you're planning a renovation, if you really want to benefit maximum from the cost segregation. Now, I'll take a step back and say, cost segregation and tax planning in general shouldn't be the reason why you're buying a property. Uh, The business plan, I fully, fully believe that the business plan and the actual, you know, property itself should be in of itself I mean, make sense enough on its own volition to to warrant buying the property and and executing the business plan on the property. So the tax benefits are you know secondary and maybe even further down the line. But if you're planning a renovation, the best case scenario to maximize the benefit of the cost seg, as I mentioned, is to do the cost seg first before renovations and then wait off at least you know six months or so, if not a full at least tax year, meaning with not within the same tax year, in order to um, you know maximize the benefit. So you can do the cost seg on the acquisition as well as after the renovations are completed. So in that case, you can actually double dip and claim you know 
double benefit from the uh, from the tax write offs when it comes to the depreciation of the you know components in the property at the time of purchase, as well as the renovations, any money being spent and put into the property on the on the back end. That's huge. <laughs> okay. I kind of was hoping that was going to be the answer, but I wanted to, you know, just clarify because again, I'm not an expert in any of this stuff. You want to talk about building materials on there, <laughs> but for, you know, in construction and renovations, awesome. But this tax stuff, it's all, you know, that's why we have people on our team to handle that. Same thing with the lawyer. So um, how do people uh, approach the... I guess the planning with you guys at Madison Specs or or any cost seg firm when it comes to, you know, mul- I guess multiple hands in the cookie jar, some want to do it, some don't want to do it, they're confused, are there resources for them to to access where they can sort of get a warm fuzzy feeling and and <laughs> not necessarily have to understand it all but understand enough of it to know Yes, this is in our best interest. No, this is not. I mean, education is key. So the first thing, like I said, we always like to do is run a free analysis so you can see for yourself. And then, you know, we're open for discussion. You know, I'm happy to jump in a call with anyone, happy to, you know, discuss. We have people on our team that can walk you through the process to make you more comfortable with it or discuss the pros and cons. You know, like I said, in many cases, it just doesn't make sense for people to do cost I give. I'm gonna tell you, I'm going to be the first one to tell you, this is not something you should do. Um, but there are scenarios where you'll have partners, you know, partnerships where, you know, it's not something that some, everyone wants to do. In that case, it's best to really think about that in the planning stage before the partnership even happens. So for example, you can write into your operating agreement and you can allocate depreciation to some members versus other members, you know, based on uh, certain capital contributions or or otherwise. And so, once the operating agreement's been drafted, there's really nothing you can do at that point. You know, if someone says, "Well, I don't need depreciation," someone says, "I really do." There's not really much you can do at that point. But if you plan ahead and do that beforehand, you can actually make it make sense for for every all parties involved. Which is huge, and I had no idea. Like I knew that's how it worked when you structured dividends and stuff at the beginning. The capital doesn't necessarily have to matter. It's it could be the amount of work that's put mm-hmm. into it or whatever. But knowing you can allocate your depreciation at the beginning is huge. And I don't know that I've ever heard that from anyone ever. <laughs> so that's that's really cool. Um, what else? What else? I mean, this is like I'm I'm a noob. I've I've asked all the questions to come to my mind. So what else do people need to know? about it. And if nothing else, how do they get in touch with you and and where do they find you and uh what's your availability like? How does the fee structure work? All that Okay, kind of stuff. I'm going to try to remember all of those questions as I go through, but um Sorry. I can re- I can Okay, them. this is going to be my challenge. I, I I like to to think I remember have a good memory. So <laughs> um okay, now I forgot everything. No, it's just <laughs> Um okay, a couple of things no, really important to know. We'll start with that. One thing is we mentioned the real estate professional status is huge. If you are that, that's going to be beneficial. If you're not a real estate professional, conservation usually doesn't make sense. There are a couple exceptions. One major exception is something we like to call the short-term rental loophole, which says that if you own and self-manage a short-term rental, right, Airbnb, the average stay is less mm-hmm. than seven days, 
and you materially participate, meaning again, you self-manage, you're spending more time than anyone else and a minimum of 100 hours, which is a pretty easy threshold to cross, Hello. especially if, you know, even if you're a W-2, even if you have another full-time job, you, the, the consternation or the depreciation then becomes active. The business becomes active. You're able to use those deductions against your active income, which is not the case with any other type of real estate investment. Um, there are a couple other types of businesses similar to that, like car washes, um, laundromats, things like that, that are operated as businesses, as opposed to, you know, just real estate in of itself, where you can use those deductions to offset active business income as well. So those are a couple really important things to know. A lot of people aren't aware of that and thinking, well, how can I benefit from cost? I, well, here's a great way to do it. Even if you're not a real estate professional, short-term rentals. Now it may not be the best wow. business idea for you, right? You have to want to be in the hospitality <laughs> mindset and want to actually run one of these, but it definitely is an option for a lot of people. Um, you know, cost-wise, it's like I mentioned, $200,000 and up is really the the lowest point we'll, we'll even look at a cost seg um, to do. The fee structure is not contingent on tax savings. So it's a flat fee based on the size and type of property, which means if you buy a property for $200,000 or $2 million, the fee may be exactly the same to get it done, but the actual tax benefits are going to be, you know, 10x because again, it's going to be based right. on your purchase price. You know, feel free to reach out to me. We're available. We're the biggest national company, uh, cost creation company out there. So last year, for example, we did over 7,000 cost studies, uh, all asset classes across, you know, all 50 states. So there's no limitations there. And um, you can find me, like you mentioned at the beginning of the episode on uh, yonawice.com or you can check me out on all the socials, especially LinkedIn. But one condition, do not just hit the follow button. Make sure to hit the connect button and write a little note that you heard me on the TCO Method Ooh. podcast. And I'll know that that's where you heard me and Andy. Uh, and otherwise, I have no idea. You know, I get tons of followers every day and just like, who are these people? How'd they find me? Why are they following me? And it's really, it's great to start a conversation and to get to know. So take 10 seconds and just write a brief note. It goes a long way. It really does. Unless your note is a sales pitch <laughs> saying, I want to sell you this stuff. This is the first message I have with you. Can you please accept my connection request? And then usually it's going to be a hard denial. Don't do that. So please don't sell, don't sell whatever you want to sell on your right. first contact. That's right. It's called social it media, right? So you, you don't want to be social medialy awkward, right? You don't want to be socially awkward. And do something like that on social media. I almost feel bad for those people because usually I don't even respond. I usually yeah. just delete it and move on with my day. But it, it's it takes a certain type of someone, and that's that's not the way. <laughs> um, so a lot of the a lot of podcasts seem to have these uh, these questions that they ask people at the end. So tell us a little bit about your background in teaching and where, where, how did you end up doing this from education to, to cost segregation? I'm not, I'm, I'm not seeing the connection. That's actually a good uh, title of the episode. You know, it's kind of catchy education to cost segregation. Um, if you didn't come up with a title yet, but there's, there's no real, like there's no real, uh, good, segue or you know way that I went from one to the other. Like you said, I was a teacher for about 15 years and really has always been my passion. I love it. I still do to, to this day. But 
it really didn't pay the bills. I was in debt, was having, you know, problems uh, getting, you know, just getting by and realized they needed to make some changes, reached out to some friends and just figured, you know, hey, what are some options? I'm open to new opportunities, open to doing something totally different. But I had really two conditions. Number one was I was not interested in having any sort of you know, uh, additional formal education. So I didn't want to go back to school in order to, you know, to, to have a new profession of some kind. And second, I was looking for something that had the the maximum, you know, potential in terms of income, you know, scale opportunity. So it was like, hey, what's something that I can do that really there's no limit, like the sky's the limit. And real estate just kept coming up in conversation between some friends when uh, when I was reaching out to people I knew who were in business and finance and whatever. And that it's a long story, but the short story of it is I met a friend who was a mortgage broker, a commercial mortgage broker, actually, and taught me everything I know, uh, basically, about commercial real estate. I sat with him in his office for about eight months and literally just like apprenticed him. And we were cold calling, you know, banks and and business owners and just, you know, trying to find deals. And it, it was it was a lot of fun. Fun. I don't know if I would ever consider cold calling fun, but if you say so, I guess if you're with the right people. Yeah, exactly. I was fun. sitting, you know, we're just buddies or hanging out in his office every day. It, it was fun. It, I I, I ne- had never really cold called before and that wasn't the fun part of it, but I learned some strategy and that's really where I had my first foray into social media and to seeing the power of, you know, of connecting with people and, you know, incoming leads and things like that, where I was using uh, different methods. I came across bigger pockets at that time. And so it, that all like, there's a lot that goes into that. But in, in those first eight months or so, that was kind of my foray into the whole, you know, commercial real estate world. That's awesome. Um, I guess my next question for you is you are an active investor. You do have some some stuff going on. Um, what's your favorite right now? Like everybody's oh doom and gloom, you know, the housing market, blah, blah, blah. I'm looking at it. I'm going, whatever. At this point, I have no idea. My crystal ball broke like six months ago as soon as the government started doing this in the pot. And I don't even attempt to guess at where we're going at this point. But, you know, where are you putting money? Where are you getting involved? I know that I've seen you, um, uh, you know, kind of dragged into some of these conversations at conferences and other things. Um, I know you were, you were thinking about doing podcast interviews at a conference, I think. I don't know if that actually happened, but... (laughs) Um, why don't you tell, tell us a little bit about where you're, where you're seeing opportunity right now. And, and yeah, there's always opportunity out there. Um, I've been much more of a passive investor, excuse me, over the years, which, you know, I'm still seeing benefits. Uh, I like self-storage. I think it's very resilient. I love, Mm -hmm. you know, multifamily. I think it's also very resilient asset class, obviously returns are very much contingent in many cases in terms of the, the, um, you know, the, the, the financing and the mortgage rates, et cetera. However, there, there's still a lot of possibilities out there. Affordable housing is a huge need all across the country. And so, you know, when you look into options, when it comes to affordable housing, I like to look at mobile home parks, um, manufactured housing communities, I think is a great option. There's not a lot of development of them going on. So when you can find them, I've invested alongside some, some great operators in the RV park space and the the mobile home uh, park space. So those are options that I think still have a lot of room to grow, even in this inflationary kind of environment that we're in. Real estate is always going to be a good option because there's always long-term wealth you know, being created. But at the same time, 
mm-hmm. you can find good deals uh, if you look for them. And so it's just it's just a matter of having the patience and having the time to look for deals. Right. Yep. Uh, off market is key and everybody loves it and nobody ever seems to know where to find it unless your network is actually working for you and with you and looking out for you because off market deals don't land on your desk if you're not out there giving too. So that's that's a big part of it. So anybody who wants to get started on social media, since this will be my last question, since you are not just the cost seg king there, but in reality also as your full time job, where where should they start on social media? I've, there's a million different gurus out there selling courses and offering services and we'll do this and this and this. And I don't know that you've actually followed any of those pieces of advice. You've just kind of created your own little niche and have crushed it. So where do you, where do you think people should start or, or where do you see um, kind of the, uh, the opportunity for somebody who wants to, to build a following and, and really, you know, become, become a player or even just to, to give, just to help inform people and, and be kind of build your brand as an expert or a, a, a thought leader? There's a lot of options. Like you said, I haven't followed any gurus. I haven't you know done any of that method, but the first thing to do for anyone who wants to like grow their social media presence, the first thing to do is figure out what are your goals? Like why? What do you want to do it for? Okay. Now, the, the, the answer to that question may totally determine which direction you take. So I'm not going to, you know, go, go into every one of those, but I'll, I'll, I'll offer a couple pieces of advice that hopefully will be able to, to translate, you know, in a lot of different ways. The first thing is you talked about niche, right? Finding a niche. Finding a niche is probably the best thing to do in general in real estate in order to be successful is find a niche and just go all in on that. And then social media is a great way to be known and to build a brand around that niche. The people, when they think about that thing, they think about you. And the way that you do that is by being, um, just, just being there, showing up on uh, social media. It means posting and engaging on a daily basis. And so one thing you really need to focus on more than anything, I think the one, if, if I was to just do one thing, okay, is to focus on commenting on other people's posts and engaging, I mean, giving very, you know, high quality, not just like just putting your name there and just saying, hey, great, you know, congrats or whatever it is. I mean, LinkedIn is amazing for for that, but Twitter, as I've ventured into over the past uh, half a year or so, has been amazing. Instagram can be good, not so much in that regard, but the, Post yeah, I mean, ghost. yeah, exactly. The commenting on other people's and really engaging is where you're going to find the benefit and where people are going to get to know you and get to know, you know, who you are, what you do and build that brand. And so even more than posting, uh, you know, coming up with content on your own, the main difference you're going to see is, is by just engaging and putting out comment comments that are adding value. Awesome. That's great. Well, I, uh, I got work to do, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I definitely comment more than I post everywhere, but I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I guess my last question is threads is threads dead because I, I, I don't really like I log in now and I do get some real estate content from like three people. And then it's just the spammy crap that I spent hours and hours yeah. blocking. So is it just toast smoked done? Like, 
I don't see a lot of a lot of re twit people going. Back I there. I didn't really see the benefit of the whole idea of it to begin with. Um, you know, I I created an account and kind of logged into to it just to see what it was all about. But similarly to what you're saying, I, I found the same. I posted a couple of things, gotten a couple kind of interactions, but there's really I don't know. I, I haven't found any benefit in it. I really haven't either. I, I, I stopped and I think most people have because you log in and it's just a yeah. bunch of ads and social media influencers who want people to follow right. their Instagram. Like, I don't care what you think. <laughs> like, I, if I wanted Instagram, I'd be looking at your pictures. I wouldn't be like looking for what you're telling me right. verbally. So, OK. All right. I'm, I'm good. I'm not I'm, I'm not insane. I was afraid I broke something, but that's good. Um, I just want to thank you so much. This has been great. It's been a blast. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, for everybody out in listener land, please stay tuned. We're going to do a couple of these interview style episodes every single month. Um, the show will continue on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then we will release interviews on Saturdays, hopefully two times a month. Uh, and it will all be inv involved with people who help you save money, max out your return on investment, max out your net operating income, reduce your risk, all that other fun stuff we talk about on the program. And I appreciate everybody tuning in. Please hit the bell if you're watching on YouTube. If you are listening on Apple or Spotify, subscribe, like, leave a comment, leave a recommendation, share it with your friend, share it with your network. I will love you forever. And I appreciate it. Yona, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a blast. 